You can go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 14. If you're new here, my name is Jonathan Romig. I'm the associate pastor. Pastor Dana, our senior pastor, is away this week and next week, but he'll be back. And uh, so, so stick around. Come on back. Before we begin, I'm going to say a, a quick prayer for the message, and then we'll get started. Father God, thank you for your word. I thank you that your Holy Spirit comes and drives your word into our hearts and changes us and molds us. Would we encounter Christ Jesus this morning through the scriptures? In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite children's books is called St. George and the Dragon. Now, it's the one retold by Margaret Hodges and illustrated by Trina Hyman. Trina Hyman. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with this book. Uh, as a child, I loved going to the library and looking at all the rich pictures, the beautiful illustrations. It, it was one of my favorite books. But I actually never read the words. I was so into the pictures I had no idea what it was about. I would look at the pictures and wonder. And so, two weeks ago, I decided I should go and get this book at the library, and I should just read it to see what it's about. And it is about a red cross knight and his princess, Una. And Una, the princess, has come to get him from a foreign land, and he comes uh, to rescue her and her people who are being terrorized by an evil dragon. And when they show up at the land, uh, the, the dragon comes out to fight the knight. And this dragon, it's a huge dragon. It's the size of a hill. Its, its, tails, its tail is miles long, and it breathes fire. And the dragon and the Red Cross Knight go to battle. This is my favorite picture in this book. Didn't know you were going to get story time this morning, did you? <laughs> and they go to battle, and they fight, and the Red Cross Knight falls, but miraculously, the next day, he rises to go to battle again. And they go to battle once more on the second day, and the, the knight cleaves the dragon's, uh, the dragon's paw, the dragon's tail, and the dragon's wing. But then once more he falls wounded to the ground. And finally, on the third day, the Red Cross Knight rises again. And the dragon, the evil, brassy-scaled dragon, can hardly believe his eyes. And he charges at the Red Cross Knight and the knight takes his sword and runs it through the dragon's jaw and kills him. And then a message of peace and hope spreads throughout the land. The king, father, and queen mother come out of their fortress to greet the new knight. And there is a message of hope that reigns. Now this story of the Red Cross Knight, the princess, and the dragon is not very much different than what we've been going through in the book of Revelation. See, we've been reading about the story of a lamb who slays a dragon. And this lamb is the Red Cross Knight. 
It's Christ Jesus who goes to war with Satan, the dragon of dragons, the most evil dragon there is. We've been learning about this story and our part in it, how, how we're on the side of the Red Cross Knight and we follow him into battle, waging war against uh, the worldview that accompanies the dragon, the worldview of lies that does not believe in Jesus, and the message that you can get to heaven some other way besides trusting in Christ Jesus for your complete salvation. We go to war against those with the Red Cross Knight. And I, I bet for some of you, this message has been really encouraging. It's been wonderful to hear about how the Red Cross Knight, how, how the Lamb has slain the dragon, Satan is defeated, and although he thrashes about like a headless serpent, the victory is won. But maybe for some of you other people, you've struggled because you've, you've focused on the other side of the message, the persecution, the suffering, the trial, the hardship. Maybe you're discouraged. I imagine that most of you feel a little bit of both ways, where you get excited about what Christ has accomplished on the cross, and yet you get nervous about your part in it and what you might have to sacrifice or give up. Well, today, I want to encourage you. I want to fill your sails with the wind of encouragement because we are on the side of the Red Cross night. I want you to get caught up in the story of going to battle, to victory. I want you to get caught up in the message that those who follow Jesus in defeat already stand with him in victory. That's the main point of this message, that those who follow Jesus in defeat already stand with him in victory. Let's read through Revelation 14, 1 through 5 once more so we can see this unfold. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So we follow Jesus into battle because we belong to Jesus. We follow Christ into a spiritual battle. And if you belong to Christ Jesus, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be nervous because those who belong to Jesus now will belong to him forever. Those who belong to Jesus today will belong to Jesus always. Now verse 1 opens with a picture of 144,000 standing on Mount Zion, standing on a mountain with the Lamb. They have been marked by the Lamb. They have uh, the, the name of Jesus and we've seen these 144,000 already once in the book of Revelation. We saw them in chapter 7. So we're seeing them here again in chapter 14. And in chapter 7, we learn that the 144,000 are the servants of God. 
They are those that have been sealed by Christ. And since we are the servants of God, since we are sealed by Christ, this includes us. So the 144,000 isn't a, a literal only 144,000. It's a symbolic number, 12 times 12,000. It represents something very meaningful. It represents us, the church. Now, we know it's symbolic in chapter 14, if you're wondering, uh, because the same verse also uses more symbolism. We refer to a lamb, and, and we know that that lamb refers to Jesus. It doesn't refer to a sheep. And the Father's name written on their foreheads, that's that they belong to Christ. It's not a literal stamp on the forehead. So, if, if this isn't about a literal 144,000, but the, all, the whole people of God, maybe there's something else that we need to focus on. See, what is much more significant in this passage is why the 144,000 appear again. They appeared in chapter 7, now they appear in chapter 14. Why is that? Why would John go back to a theme that he already unpacked? Well, it's because in chapter 7, the 144,000, they're standing on the earth. They're standing on the world. And in chapter 14, they're standing on Mount Zion. They're standing on God's holy hill. See, we, we believe in a God who is good to us in the here and the now, in the chapter 7 when we're caught up in the world. And we believe in a God who will deliver us to chapter 14, who will deliver us to Mount Zion, who promises to take us and redeem us and to rescue us. We believe in a God who is good on his promises. When he promises to do something, he will do it. Those who belong to Jesus now, today, in chapter 7, belong to Jesus still in chapter 14. The number has not changed. Now, this picture of the 144,000 standing on Mount Zion is not just for the end of time. It's a picture of the already and not yet or the now and not yet. Now, we've talked about this some. Pastor Dan has talked about it a lot. Uh, this is one of the first times that I've talked about it. Uh, and I know that there are some of you who are technologically savvy and yet incredibly materialistic who own iPhones. Here's my iPhone. So to help us understand this concept, what you might not know is that the new iPhones, uh, they have this setting when you take a photograph called HDR. And when you, when you take a picture with an iPhone on this HDR setting, it doesn't take just one photo. It takes three photos. It takes a photo of the foreground, the middle ground, and the background. And then it merges them all into one photo. And, and when you look at this photo, when you're swiping through your, your pictures, you only see one. Because Apple designed a product that will take the, the photos, the, the best of each picture, and, and, and combine it. And what Scripture is telling us is that God has an amazing camera. He has a camera that not only takes a picture of the now, but it takes a picture of the end of glory. And it combines those into one beautiful photograph where you stand with Christ already. We are already standing with Christ in victory. That's a beautiful painting. I want to hang it on my wall. Now, both the words stand and written 
are in what grammarians like to call the perfect tense. And we've talked about this uh, before. It's, it's kind of a complicated concept, but it's not too bad. Uh, what it's saying is that something happened in the past that has present implications, that has continuing results, that has continuing consequences. So whatever happened back then matters for today. Now, what happened in the story of Jesus Christ back then that matters for us today? What could this standing possibly refer to? It refers to the cross of Jesus Christ. Revelation 5, 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Christ Jesus was slain on a mountain yesterday so that you could stand on Mount Zion with him today. Christ Jesus offered himself on your behalf. So if you trust in him, you, you can be with him and know him and love him and be loved by him. And no one can remove you from his side. Nobody can take you off of Mount Zion. Now there's a side note on this. Uh, John was the, is the author of the book of Revelation. He received visions from God, and he, he wrote them down. And he's, he's writing to uh, a largely persecuted audience, uh, and many of the believers would be in the city of Rome. That's kind of the, the, kind of the capital city of, of the persecution against the Christians. And uh, what you might not know about Rome is that Rome was built on seven hills. Rome was built on seven hills. So John is giving a little shout out here. He's saying that your mountain is higher. Your mountain is stronger. If you stand with Christ, you stand on the higher ground. You don't need seven mountains if you stand with Jesus. Those who belong to Jesus now will belong to him forever. But maybe you've noticed that the now, the present, the already, it's a little bit more difficult than you expected, than you'd like, than you wanted. You long for a perfect future with Christ Jesus when you don't have to struggle with, with violence, with hate, with gossip, with war, with divorce, with a job you dislike. You want that perfect future. And what John is reminding us of today is that those who worship Jesus in trial will worship him in peace. Those who celebrate Christ Jesus when it's tough will celebrate him when it's really good. Those who worship Jesus in trial will worship him in peace. Now back in Revelation 7, 9, we read about 144,000 followed by a great multitude. So maybe today you're inspired to go read chapter 7 of Revelation and you'll see that there's 144,000, that comes first, and then right after that there's a picture of a great multitude of people, every tribe, tongue, nation singing praises to God. And the same thing is happening in our passage. It's just a little bit more subtle. In, in Revelation 14, John first sees 144,000, and then he hears a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters. See, John is using two senses to describe the one people of God. 
First, he looks and he sees a number that is so vast he can't help but describe it, but using a symbolic number of 144,000. And then he turns and he listens, and it's a giant roar. It's a great song of praise. And who are these people? These, this is the church. This is you and me. This is all believers, all who have put their faith in Christ from the past, and the present, and the future. This is the church. And notice that the whole church is singing a special song. The whole church is singing a new song. It's not just a, a select group of people in heaven that will be able to sing a praise song. It's everyone. That those who praise Jesus in this life are those that will praise him in the next. If you praise him now, you get to praise him then. You'll know that special song because you can't help but praise God unless the Holy Spirit is inside of you. That makes you special. Those who praise Jesus in this life are the saints who will praise him in the next. But maybe you're struggling with praising Christ Jesus. Maybe you were here this morning and either singing's not your thing or you just don't have a heart attitude that can praise God right now because of life's circumstances. And when we come to moments like this, this is when we have to call upon God and say, Lord, help me sing a new song of praise to you because if I'm in my own power and my own strength, I will never praise you. But if you come and help me, help me focus on you and on the cross and what Christ Jesus has done, help me focus on that. And I will be able to sing a new song of praise. Those who worship Jesus in trial will worship him in peace. But why are all these believers singing songs of praise? What has the Lamb done? Well, when we worship Jesus, we celebrate his victory over the dragon. We celebrate the Red Cross, Cross's night, night's victory over Satan and what he has accomplished. Verses 2 and 3 are an encouragement for us to celebrate Christ's victory on the cross. See, here the great multitude, the 144,000, they're celebrating Jesus' victory. They're not preparing to go into battle. They're celebrating what Jesus has already accomplished. You'll notice that it says, that there was a great sound. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Now, if you think about going into battle, you probably don't imagine a harp. You don't imagine people riding into war strumming their harps intensely. You probably think of like a trumpet or maybe, you know, the drums from the Revolutionary War. The harp is a wedding instrument. The harp celebrates the wedding feast. The harp is a picture of heaven. So even here, before the battle's done, it's celebrating Jesus and what he has done, that the war is over. And how did Jesus do this? He redeemed his people. He did it all through the cross. When we worship Jesus, we celebrate his victory over the dragon. Don't you find yourself getting excited for what Christ Jesus has done? Don't you find yourself wanting to be on the side of the Red Cross Knight? 
Don't you want to go into battle against the evil dragon, against the brassy-scaled dragon? This is why we believe in Christianity. We don't just believe the truth of Christ Jesus because someone uh, convinced us logically. It's true, there are plenty of good reasons to believe in Christianity. But we believe because it's a story worth believing in. The author Charles Taylor puts it this way, don't you feel it? Don't you have those moments of either foreboding or on the cusp elation where you can't shake the sense that there must be something more? C.S. Lewis writes, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. I think this is why culture loves the television show Game of Thrones. It's because we know in our heart of hearts that there is nothing greater than fighting a dragon. And who is the one who has slain the most ferocious dragon? It's Christ Jesus. When we worship Jesus, we celebrate his victory over the dragon. Now, this story is not easy. It's tough, but don't get discouraged because the ending is good. Those who follow Jesus in defeat already stand with him in victory. Those who follow Jesus in defeat already stand with him in victory. When we follow Christ, we may lose out in the short term. We may be tempted. We may fall. We may, may, may sin, but Christ offers so much forgiveness and grace. He offers to pick us back up again. He calls us to follow him. Maybe that's your prayer. You're like, Lord, I want to follow you. What does a follower of Jesus look like? Our text tells us in verses 4 and 5, it gives us four signs of, of, of what a follower looks like, a mark of a follower of Christ. First, followers of Jesus are loyal to him. Verse 4, it is those, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. First, followers of Jesus are loyal to him. In the Old Testament, warriors were supposed to maintain ritual purity before going into battle. So if they were going to do holy war on behalf of God, they had to remain celibate. Now our text, the 145,000, it's, it's not describing a whole bunch of celibate men with swords. It's describing us who have been given a pure heart, a holy heart, who follow Christ, who have moral purity, who seek to live lives every single day that honor God, who seek to glorify God, who seek to put him first, even when it's challenging, even when it's difficult, whether you're at school and your friends want to live otherwise, you seek to follow Christ, or if you're at your job and uh, your coworkers don't want to, uh, to work honestly, and you seek to follow him. And then at any moment, being willing to, to share the gospel. These are the Christians who are loyal to Jesus. Loyal Christians believe the gospel. We love Jesus. And we love our neighbors. Now notice that these Old Testament warriors aren't pure because they stay out of harm's way. They go out to do battle. And Christ calls us to do, do the same. To go out to do spiritual battle in his name. To go out and to be among people that hate Jesus. 
First, followers of Jesus are loyal to him. Second, followers of Jesus talk about him. Verses 4 and 5 talk about those who follow the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found. Now, followers of Jesus imitate his example of witnessing. If we're to follow Jesus and imitate him, remember, what did Jesus come doing? He came proclaiming the gospel. He came uh, telling people the good news about him, about himself. He came telling people about the bad news about hell, and that's a real place. And that to go to heaven, to, to be with God, you need to believe in Christ Jesus. Are you willing and wanting to share this message? Does this message encourage you or does it make you feel ashamed and you don't want to share it? Followers of Jesus talk about him. And it's not just on missions trips or at the church that we talk about Jesus. It's on your front lines, the schoolyard, the place where you spend all your time, your job, your social clubs. We talk about him at our front lines, at those places we live. Now, maybe for some of you that's more difficult. You work for the government or some organization that says, no, you better not bring up Jesus. Well, this week when you go to work, pray to Jesus and say, Lord, would, would you do something to let me talk about you? I don't know what that is. I don't know what that's going to look like. Maybe it's offering to pray for a coworker. Maybe it's... Uh, something else. Maybe you're just praying for your coworker, regardless. But just, just see what God will do if you honestly ask him and say, God, this week I, w- I want to talk about you. You might be surprised. He'll probably give you the opportunity. Now, maybe you don't have a job. Maybe, maybe you're at home a lot, but you, you enjoy making meals or having hospitality. My challenge to you is next time you want to have one of your, your friends over that is like a Christian family, disinvite them. You can, you can call me and I'll do it for you. <laughs> and invite a family that doesn't know Jesus and have a meal with them. And you don't have to ram the gospel down their throat. Just pray a prayer and see how conversation unfolds and begin to build that relationship. Get to know these people. Followers of Jesus talk about him. Third, followers of Jesus sacrifice him for, for him. Followers of Jesus sacrifice for him. If we're following Jesus, we first follow him to the cross. Notice our text says blameless in verse 5. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. It also refers to the first fruits was an offering, which was an offering in verse 4. Now, this, the, 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 the concept of blameless is like the concept of spotless in the Old Testament. And the people of God, the nation of Israel would bring spotless lambs to be sacrificed to atone for their sins, to make up for their wrongdoing, and it was a costly sacrifice. The spotless lamb was the most expensive one. And what this text is saying is that we are the, the blameless ones. We're, we're the spotless ones. We're costly We're the lambs who who cost God everything. Do you realize that? You are Jesus Christ. You are God's most expensive possession. 
Because he had to spend the life of his only son, Jesus Christ, to purchase you. Now, right now, we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to make sacrifices as well? We as a church are considering church planting. It's a pretty exciting opportunity. A church in Westford has asked us to consider taking over their building so that uh, we can start a new church in our neighboring town. And this is going to require sacrifice. Now, the first sacrifice that pops into my head is a financial sacrifice. Yeah, it's going to cost time. It's going to cost extra money to start a whole new church. But I don't think this is the toughest sacrifice for most of you. I think the toughest sacrifice for most of you are the relationships we're going to have to give up. We're going to have to, to decide, are we willing to let our friends go to the church plant and, and serve God with their time there? Are we willing to go and serve Christ at this new place? Are we willing to, to bring our, our relationships before the Lord and say, God, I love this person, I love this friend, but for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the kingdom, I lay them down before you. I won't see them every Sunday anymore, but it's for a really good cause. And God would somehow, some mysterious way, would our relationship, would our friendship be even stronger because we both put the gospel first. Followers of Jesus sacrifice for him. Fourth, followers of Jesus bear fruit. Our text talks about the first fruit, that we, the people of God, are the first fruit of the harvest. Now, the first fruits are, are, are the first of the harvest, and they were considered sacred to the Lord. Now, the rest of the harvest, it was considered common and, and profane. That means, that means we're special to God, just like if we're spotless and blameless, we're costly. And it implies something. See, if you are a first fruit, are you bearing good fruit? If you're the best fruit that God has, are you bearing best fruit? Followers of Jesus bear fruit. Are you a delicious reddish-green Macintosh apple or golden delicious, my favorite? Do you taste really good? Are your words, thoughts, actions, and deeds flavored with the gospel? Flavored with the good news that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. And he died a pretty awful death. So that if you put your faith in him, you get the credit for his good life. You get all of his righteousness and all of his holiness. Does this message fill you up? And does it bear fruit? Does it cause you to do things that the world doesn't understand? Followers of Jesus bear fruit. So first, followers of Jesus are loyal to him. Second, followers of Jesus talk about him. Third, followers, followers of Jesus sacrifice for him. And fourth, followers of Jesus bear fruit. I really like the ending to this children's book, St. George and the Dragon. After the knight has, the Red Cross knight has slain the dragon, there's a picture 
of uh, the, the slain dragon in the background and the people walking all around the dragon. They're greeting the, the knight and telling him how thankful they are. And that's a picture of where we are right now. The dragon has been slain. Satan has been defeated. In the storybook, a little child runs up to the dragon and touches his, its claw. And then he gets scolded by his mom because you shouldn't touch dragon claws. <laughs> this is just like us. You know, the dragon can still cut us. He's still at work, but he is defeated. He's headless. He's gone. He's dead. Christ Jesus, our dragon slayer, has defeated Satan. Don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to get caught up in the story? There's a wedding coming. There's a whole party. There's a celebration. At the end of this book, there's a, there's a picture of the knight and, and the king eating at a table and the bride coming in. And this is what awaits us, that we are the bride of Christ. We are the church. And our knight has purchased us, and he is coming soon. Pretty soon we will hear the harps. We will hear the heavenly music. Those who follow Jesus in defeat already stand with him in victory. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are our red cross knight. That you paid the penalty for our sins on a tree. Lord, if there are any here that do not trust you, would they join the side of the Red Cross Knight today? They get caught up in the glorious battle with you at our head. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray, amen.